I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us minds so that we might understand your word. We pray that as we seek to understand your word together tonight, you might transform us, as you've promised, more and more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be powerfully at work amongst us through your word and by your spirit so that we might be the people you have made us to be in the Lord Jesus for your great glory. And we pray it in his risen name. Amen. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus. Let's try again. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus. Jesus lives and he is Lord. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. Jesus lives and he is Lord. He's been raised as the first fruits of a mighty harvest to come. But what about now? What about today? Normally when we think about resurrection, we're either thinking about Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago, or we're thinking about our future bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. But according to the Christian Bible, Christians have already been resurrected. That's a pretty surprising truth contained there in the New Testament. It turns out it has massive implications for how we understand what it means to be a Christian and how we live as Christians in the here and the now. So have a look in your booklet, at page 23, at what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, so that means every Christian, that person is a new creation. The old things, he says, have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation. Not one day you will be a new creation, you're a new creation now. The new resurrection reality has already begun in you if you're a Christian because you are in Christ as Paul puts it there. And it's this idea of being in Christ that is key for understanding how it is that we've already been resurrected. Now, one way into understanding this idea of being in Christ is to follow John Calvin in the quote he has there on your page. Calvin was an important figure in the Protestant Reformation of the 15th and the 16th centuries. And in his famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he poses what's a what is actually a vital question, and then he answers it. This is what he says. We must now, he says, examine this question. How do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Bestowed on him, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. That's his question. He then gives the answer. First, 
we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. He then says, it is through the secret energy of the Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. The Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. Uh, presumably, Calvin's thinking about verses like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where Paul says, we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, that is, into Christ. The same Spirit that was at work in Jesus has now been poured out into us. We share in Jesus' Spirit, and in that way, we're united to Him. And once we're united to Him, all of His benefits, to use Calvin's word, all of the things that he won for us are now true of us as well as of him. What's true of him is also true of us. So there on your page, Robert Letham puts it like this, union with Christ is, in fact, the foundation of all the blessings of salvation. Justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification are all received through our being united to Christ. And to that list, we could add resurrection as well. You can see I've tried to represent it in the diagram there at the bottom of page 23. We're united to Christ in the Spirit through faith, and that's how we can receive all of Christ's benefits. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, and resurrection. If you want to try to think about it, it's, it's like imagine... Imagine Jesus reaching down and scooping up everyone who has faith in him. He scoops everyone up who's got faith in him and he puts you in his backpack. So now what's true of him is true of you because he's put you in his backpack. Where he goes, you go. Or think of it maybe as a big aeroplane. It's a big aeroplane. It says on the side, Jesus Christ Air. When you're in Christ, that means you're in the plane. So now wherever Christ goes, that's where you are too. All the things that Jesus won for us in salvation are there in the plane. So now they're true of you as well because you are in Christ. And in particular, what Paul said about everyone who's in Christ is that they are, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Well, what does Paul mean by that? What sort of new creation are we in Christ? I'm now over the page on page 24, and we're going to look in some detail at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you could turn that up in your Bibles, that'll be really helpful. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10.
Now, you can see on the outline that I've divided up into the past, the present, the future, and a summary. And that's sort of going to step us through the, chap- the uh, section from verses 1 to 10. First of all, verses 1 to 3. Notice how Paul describes our past. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in once you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. This is a shocking indictment. If you're without Jesus, you are not just lost. If you're without Jesus, you're not just alienated from God. Without Jesus, we're dead. We saw last night the consequence of sin, the wages of sin is death. And even though we're walking around, breathing and talking, working and laughing, when we're following the ways of the world, the world that rejects God and His ways, we're dead. Spiritually dead with respect to God and destined one day to experience the full, terrible force of His just wrath. It is a terrible situation in which to be. And as Paul says in verse 3, we've all been there, every one of us. We were dead. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body. But very clear when you're confronted with a dead body that you just, it's, it's terrible, it's tragic. You cannot do anything now to help yourself. To be dead is to be totally powerless, totally helpless. But in the midst of that awful black reality that we are dead in our sins, God is the one who can bring life to the dead. Have a look at how Paul then describes our present reality in verses 4 to 6. But God, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what's God done? You can see it there in verse 5. He made us alive. That's resurrection talk. He made us alive together with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, when he was raised from the dead, we were raised spiritually there too. And notice Paul talks about it as a present reality. This is a transformation that has already taken place in the life of a Christian. You were spiritually dead, but now you have been raised up with him. In fact, there in verse 6 he says, You've been raised and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. What does that mean? I mean, I've sometimes heard people speak about that verse as though there's like a second spiritual me hanging out with Jesus in heaven. 
while the physical me is sort of here on earth? What might the heavenly me be doing? Is he watching down on me? Or is he too busy doing whatever they do in heaven? Is he busy singing or praying or feasting or tickling Jesus or whatever you do in heaven? I don't know what you do. But that misunderstands what Paul's saying here. There's not two me's. There's not two you's, a you here and a you in heaven. No, there's just one you and there's one me and we're both here. Saying that we've been raised with Christ and then seated with Christ in the heavenly places is a statement about our spiritual status. We belong with Christ. It's like you're there in his backpack. I mean, you're here, but spiritually, in terms of status, you're with him. You're in Christ. Where he is, that's where you are too. Now, if you look carefully at what Paul says here, you can see that he doesn't think there's two me's or two you's. Notice at the end of verse 6, he says, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our resurrection and seating with Christ all happens in Christ Jesus. It hasn't happened bodily yet, but it is a spiritual reality that's already happened to you because of your union with Christ. Your resurrection life has already begun. But there's still a future, actually, to look forward to as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose for you is not fulfilled in just making you spiritually alive now. God's purpose in spiritually raising you now, according to verse 7, is so that in the coming ages, he might fully reveal the immeasurable richness of his grace towards you in Jesus. So if you think being a Christian is just about forgiveness now, or even being a new creation now, or having the Spirit now, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. God's raised you to spiritual life now so that you might experience the full mind-blowing package when Christ returns. And we're going to see what that will look like in a moment. Well, that then brings us to Paul's conclusion and summary in verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God is the one who's brought us from death to life in Jesus. We are what he has made us. Now stop and think about this for a moment. Why did God do such a thing? Why has he brought you from death to life? It's there in the passage. We read it. Verse 4. 
because he is rich in mercy. Mercy is when you show compassion to someone over whom you have power. So it's when you're rumbling your kid brother or your niece or your nephew and you deliberately go easy on them. That's mercy. It's when the lecturer grants you an extension because your life has got really messy. They have power over you, but they show compassion. That, that's mercy. The one true living God, if you want to know what God's like, He is rich in mercy. He doesn't just show a little bit of mercy. He doesn't give mercy begrudgingly. He's rich in mercy. He exercises his power over us with deep compassion. How has he shown his mercy? By making you a new creation. By making you a new creation in Christ, even when you were dead in your sins. That's how he's shown his mercy to you. But we can dig deeper here. Why has God been so merciful to us like this? Still there in verse 4. Because he loves us with a great love. Remember that God takes no delight in the death of any sinner. He wants us to live. Why does he want us to live? Because he loves us. He loves us heaps. How much exactly? Well, there's lots of things that you can pretty much get your head around and understand fully, right? If you really want to learn how an engine works, I don't know why you would, but if you did, you could do that, right? You could wrap your head around it. If you really want to wrap your head around social theory or the pros and cons of microfinancing or whatever, well, God's made us with good brains and we can understand all sorts of stuff. But there's one thing that you will never, ever fully grasp. And that's how much God loves you. In the very next chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul prays that the Ephesians might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know, he says, this love that surpasses knowledge. No matter how much you try to understand God's love for you in Jesus, you will never comprehend it in its entirety because it surpasses feeble human knowledge. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we'll never get it entirely, Paul prays that they might have power from God's Spirit to grasp something of the dimensions of God's love. It's like he imagines that you're standing on the edge of a cliff and in front of you is a massive wall. Huge walls. You stand on the cliff. There it is going way down and way up and way to the side. It's a massive wall. In fact, it's not a wall because it, it, it goes deep. It's thick too. It's not a wall. It's a, it's a monolith. It's a, it's a continent rising up before you as you stand on the edge of this cliff and it's everywhere and it says in great letters in front of it, the love of Christ 
for you. And you just, it goes higher than you can see. Deeper than you can fathom. Wider than you can possibly, thicker it. The love of Christ for you. That surpasses knowledge. See, God's love for you in Jesus' death and resurrection is unfathomably deep. It's as deep as the depths of hell itself, isn't it? We will never in all eternity finish plumbing the depths of what Jesus went through out of love for you, out of love for me. His love for us in Christ is infinitely high. It's as high as Christ has raised, ascended to God's right hand. It is deeper, longer than we can possibly see. It will never come to an end. And how wide? Well, it's as wide as the arms of Jesus, God's Son, nailed to the cross, enduring his Father's just wrath against sin in your place, in my place. You are a Christian only because of God's great love for you. In his great love for you, he has brought you from death to life. And I know, it's, it's so easy to forget. You might not feel loved, but that doesn't change the fact of his great love for you in Jesus. And that's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that having been established and grounded in God's love, that they might now have power to grasp something of the immensity of that love seen in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Because knowing that he loves you really does make a difference. But you say, I'm, not, I'm just not worthy of that sort of love. Too right, neither am I. None of us are. We don't deserve resurrection life in Jesus. We deserve death. We're not saved from death to life because we deserve it. We're saved despite the fact that we don't deserve it. That's why Paul emphasizes throughout this passage that it is by grace that we've been saved. Grace is undeserved kindness. It's when you give someone something great that they don't deserve. So when you forgive somebody who's hurt you, that's grace. Or when you're kind to a work colleague who's bad-mouthed you behind your back, that's grace. And God making us alive in Jesus when we were dead in sins, that's an act of grace. We're getting there what we don't deserve. Paul talks about it right throughout this passage. There in verse 5, again in verse 7, again in verse 8 and 9, we're saved by grace, not from our own works, as though we've earned the right to move from death to life. No, it's all of grace, so none of us can boast. We are what he has made us. New creations brought from death to life in Jesus out of his rich mercy, his great love, and his immeasurable grace. Now, Ephesians is not the only place in the New Testament you'll find this talked about, far from it. 
Uh, Colossians is another place that Paul talks extensively about our resurrection with Christ. And we're going to look at that in some detail tomorrow in our review groups, which will be great. But I've just put two sample verses there on your outline from Colossians, there on page 24, which just show to trace out that same set of ideas as we've seen here in Ephesians. Colossians 2.12 says, You've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You can see there we've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. We've been united to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. As I've tried to show there in the diagram, you see the diagram in the middle of page 24? We're united to Jesus in his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the tomb. That is meant to be a sketch of a tomb in a cave with a round entranceway. Though people have told me they actually thought it was a donut. Now, I'm pretty certain Jesus did not go to the cross and then to a donut. And I'm also pretty certain the Bible never says we're united to Jesus and his donut. Okay, so let's just agree it's the empty tomb. All right? It's just it's the empty tomb. We've been united to Jesus in his death on the cross and united to him in his resurrection from the tomb. But again, there's still more to come. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Jesus appears, we're going to be physically raised and transformed so that we're like him. We'll appear with him gloriously. So you put all of this together, both our present resurrection with Jesus and our future resurrection when he comes, there's a diagram at the bottom of page 24. Our resurrection is one resurrection in two installments. As I said last night, there's only one general resurrection. It's just that Jesus has been raised as the first fruits of the wider harvest to come. That's why in the diagram, Jesus at the left is at the pointy end of the lines coming out to include the rest of us. He's the first fruits with the rest of the harvest coming. But when someone becomes a Christian, that's the moment where you are brought from spiritual death to new life. There's a fundamental change of identity at that point. You really are a new creation. God has put his spirit in you. You're a new creation and God has begun his resurrection work in you. But our resurrection is not complete in all its fullness until Jesus returns and our outer physical body is renewed as well. It's not a separate resurrection from the one God has already begun in you. It's just the physical aspect of it, the completion of it. It's one great resurrection, united to Christ, but we experience it in these two installments. Our inner resurrection, now, with Jesus, and our future bodily resurrection with Him when He returns. One put, person put it this way, our resurrection is both an accomplished fact, you've been raised with Christ now, and a future hope. So you've been raised now, if you're a Christian. You're already a new creation, united to Jesus in his resurrection. And that has lots of implications for how we live now. We're going to spend the rest of tonight's session looking at two aspects of our resurrection life now. First of all, walking in newness of life. 
Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Now, as I read it out, I want you to notice all the union with Christ language, all the times that Paul says, in Christ or with Christ, and notice what we're united with Christ in each time. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin go on living in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The key point I want to make to you, the key theological point is there in verse 4. We've been united to Jesus in his death so that just as he was raised from the dead, we might walk in newness of life as well. The point of our being united to Jesus was so that we might die to sin, as he says there in verse 2. So that we might die to sin and instead walk in newness of life. That's why he has united us to Jesus for that purpose. He then continues, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice there, there's our union with Jesus in both his death and his resurrection, as we saw in Ephesians and Colossians. Paul then plays out the point of why God united us us to Jesus. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. So why did God unite you to Jesus' death? It was so that sin would no longer control you. Our old self held in slavery to sin was crucified with Jesus at the cross. And once you're dead, sin no longer has any power over you. Our old self died there with Jesus at the cross, so sin is no longer master over us. You remember from last night, there's always two sides to salvation. There's a salvation from and a salvation into which corresponds to the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So having talked about our union with Jesus in his death, Paul then moves on to the resurrection, verse 8. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul is getting us to look back to our death with Christ and forward 
to our future resurrection with Christ. You need to look both ways. You need to look back and forward to understand how you should live in the present. Your old self died with Jesus at the cross and you know that one day you'll be raised eternally just like him. And even though that hasn't happened fully yet, because of your union with Jesus, you already have started to share in that new resurrection life. Which then brings Paul to his key implication. It's in verse 11, but I'm going to start from verse 10 again. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is about understanding the reality of you being united to Jesus. Being united to Jesus is not just a sort of interesting theological idea. Being united to Jesus is a revelation from God about your reality. Who you really are, if you are a Christian, is that you are united to Jesus. It's a revelation from God about your reality. This is who you are. You are a new creation. You must understand yourself to be dead to sin because the death Jesus died was a death to sin and he died it once for all. And you've been united to Jesus' resurrection where the life he lives now, he lives not towards sin, he lives it to God. And by God's amazing grace, that's now you, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul then tells us how to live this out, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members, that is the different parts of your body, as sin, uh, to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Since you have died to sin and are now alive to God in Christ Jesus, don't let sin rule in your physical body. Stop treating sin as your master. Stop putting sin in the corner office of your life. Since you died to sin, you're not enslaved to sin anymore. God has brought you to himself, so live for him. Use your body to serve him, not to serve sin. You see, Christian living is not actually a you-should-just-try-harder message. That's not the message about Christian living. That's not the Christian message about Christian living. Just try harder. No. The message is you are a new creation. Live out who God has made you to be. Live out who you actually are in Jesus, a new creation. 
The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. And that's you in His mercy and grace. That's who you are, whether you realize it or not. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been raised. That might raise a number of questions for you, actually. If I really have died to sin, how come I keep on sinning? What sort of place does sin have in my life as a Christian? So here's a little challenge for you. See the five gingerbread dudes there on page 25? The five gingerbread dudes. Which one of these best reflects how we should think about ourselves as those who are in Christ with respect to sin? So I might need to explain the pictures to you a little bit. Sin is represented by the dark shading. So, for example, in the leftmost gingerbread dude, you can see that we're mostly dark with just a few spots of white. So that would sort of represent, so as a Christian, I have a little bit of holiness in what is fundamentally a sinful person. Is that how it works? Or the second gingerbread dude, who's half white and half dark, which means, you know, say, saying we're split internally between sin and holiness. There's sort of an internal war raging within me between sin and holiness. Is that, is that what it's like as a Christian? The third gingerbread dude, we're basically morally neutral, but we're open to both temptations to sin, but also encouragements to holiness. It's just a matter of which external voice you're listening to at any one time, which determines which way you might go. Is that how it goes? Fourth option, the 1990s rapper option. (laughs) Sin is like clothing put on top of what is a clean body. I'm not making any claim about the holiness of 1990s rappers, by the way. The fifth and final option, we are sin-free. Sin is not part of our present experience at all. Well, which do you think captures best the present reality of sin in our life as Christians? I want you to take a moment. I want you to put a tick in the box that you think best represents our reality. And I want you to be a bit brave and share your thought with the person next to you. But put a tick first. Okay. All right, now, confession time. I'll admit that it's deliberately a little bit tricky. There are bits of truth in all of them. Numbers one and two resonate with our experience. We often feel like that's how it is. And certainly we do experience both encouragements and temptations from the third one. But the one that best captures the actuality of sin in the life of the Christian is, I think, the 90s rapper. See, what we've been reading in the Bible tonight from Ephesians and Romans tells us 
that a fundamental change has occurred in us in our inner resurrection with Jesus such that we are no longer enslaved or controlled by sin. We are a new creation. But despite that fundamental change, we do still keep giving in to old sinful behaviours, much like old habits or old bits of clothing that we have not taken off yet. In fact, the Apostle Paul, using the clothing analogy in Colossians 3, this is how he puts it, Colossians 3, 9 to 12. He says, you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And over all these, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Of course, where we're heading when Jesus returns is the fifth gingerbread dude, where there will be no more sin in our experience, where we will entirely be, finally, sin-free. But for now, the battle is to take off the old sinful practices. Get rid of the old habits of sin because you died to sin. You died to sin there with Jesus at the cross and now you are alive to God in Christ. So offer all the parts of your body to God, not to sin. Well, what exactly does walking in newness of life look like then? Well, tomorrow in review groups, we're going to spend time looking at what Paul says in Colossians 3. But it means taking off the old sinful practices and clothing ourselves with godliness. In fact, also there in Colossians 3, Paul says we're to put to death in ourselves those old earthly ways. We're to rid ourselves of them. And he lists off the sort of things that we should get rid of. Things like sexual immorality or impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. Things like anger and rage and malice and slander, bad language and lying. These, he says, are the things against which God will one day pour out his wrath. They belong to your old self. But since you've died with Christ and been raised with him, you've taken off that old self, so put these practices to death. Now, that's all very easy to say. But if you're a Christian, I'd really love you. In fact, I'll correct that. God, God wants you to take this seriously. You are a new creation in Christ. That's who he has made you to be. Your old self has died. Now you live to God as one who's been raised with Christ. So don't tolerate sin in your life. In the power of God's spirit, put it to death. I know there are Christians here tonight who is sleeping with their boyfriend or sleeping with their girlfriend. There's Christians here tonight who are casually hooking up for sex. There are Christians here who, who keep going back to porn. 
or who indulging lust, indulging in it in their minds over and over. I know there are Christians here tonight who quickly resort to lies to protect themselves. There are sisters and brothers here who are greedy. Greedy for money. Greedy for fame. Maybe greedy for power, for influence. And I know there are brothers and sisters here who often slip into anger, even rage. Maybe not in public, but at home with their family. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is not good. This is not who you are and who God has made you to be. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been raised with him. Put to death these old ways. Get rid of them. Don't let sin rule in your body. You've got the guidance of his word. You've got the power of his spirit within you. You've got the encouragement and support of his people around you. Get rid of it. Put it to death. Living this way is not who you are in Jesus Christ. If you can hear there in your heart God putting his finger on you tonight as we talk about those things, don't put it off. Bring it tonight to him in repentance, no matter what it is. And receive his bountiful forgiveness. He washes all our sins away. Because of what Jesus did there at the cross. No matter how bleak and dark your sin. There is always with Jesus. Grace and forgiveness when we turn back to him. So don't put it off. Don't let sin keep ruling in your life. And if you'd like to pray with someone about it, in confidence, come and pray with some of the EU staff after the session over there to the left of the stage behind the big dividers. Because that's not who God has made you to be. And it doesn't have to be like that. So seek his help, his forgiveness. And live who he's made you to be in Jesus. Well, before we finish, I, I want to highlight one other aspect of our resurrection life now. Because I think it's really important. It may change how you actually think about your life. Still there on page 25, perseverance in weakness. The message here is that no matter how bleak things get in life, no matter how difficult life gets, we have a God on whom we can rely, a God who even raises the dead. Paul writes to the Corinthians to let them know about the hardship that he and his co-workers suffered as they proclaimed Jesus. He shares with them in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. He says, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, 
we felt the sentence of death. Now, that's real hardship. Think about that for a moment. He's pushed to the point where they just could not handle it anymore. In fact, they suspected they would die. They despaired of life. They felt, he said, the sentence of death. What can you do when the pressure is too much? When you're at absolute breaking point? Well, look at what he says. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he was feeling the sentence of death. Paul and his friends were forced to rely on the God for whom even death is not a problem because he's the God who can raise the dead. Indeed, Paul says that the reason they were pushed to that extreme point was so that they might not rely on themselves. It forced them to turn to God for hope and strength. Now, you know that many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world They know what Paul's talking about here. They are under the threat of extreme persecution, even death, because they follow Jesus. But even in that extreme situation, we do not lose hope. We keep on persevering in Christ because our hope and our strength are not in ourselves, but in the one true living God who raises the dead. And if that's true for our Christian brothers and sisters in extreme persecution, how much more is it true for us when we're under various sorts of pressure? When you feel pushed to your absolute limit, when you do not think that maybe you can go on with it anymore, no matter, no matter what the situation, remember, You have a God upon whom you can always rely, for whom even death is no barrier, because he raises the dead. In fact, Paul picks up the same theme again a bit later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 and talks about how each of our lives as a Christian is a gospel canvas. Have a look at what he writes there in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 to 12, bottom of page 25. He's just talked about how his experience of proclaiming the gospel has been that while he has been hard-pressed on every side, he's not been crushed, he's been struck down, but he's not been destroyed. And then he explains his experience in verse 10. He says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. One of the results of your unity with Jesus, your union with Jesus, is that your present life is like a canvas, a painting. Your life is a painting, a canvas, which portrays both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. How so, you say? Well, the death of Jesus is displayed in our suffering and our persecution. But the fact that God sustains our faith through those experiences, 
so that we're not crushed, we're not destroyed, that is a demonstration of His resurrection power. Our present bodily experience as Christians will always show forth both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Our life, united to Jesus, will be a gospel canvas. Well, we've covered a lot tonight. Our union with Jesus, our resurrection with Him in two installments, that it's all because of God's rich mercy and His great immeasurable love, the reality of walking in the newness of life and putting sin to death, our life as a gospel canvas. There's a lot to think on there, isn't there? Isn't God great? Isn't His Word rich? Isn't His truth magnificent? So I'll give you about 10 seconds to sort of gather your thoughts. Then I'm going to read a verse of this song, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. There in the ground Christ's body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Father, we praise and thank you for your great love for us in Jesus. Thank you for mercifully bringing us from death to life in him. Grant us power by your spirit to grasp something of how wide and long and high and deep is your great love for us in Jesus. And help each of us to not let sin rule in our bodies, but to put on the new self as you renew us in your own image. Help us to rely on you as the mighty living God who brings dead, the dead to life so that our lives might be reflections of your gospel, shining forth both the death and the mighty resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who now lives with you, awesome and glorious forever and ever. Amen.